If you would, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Malachi. This is it, y'all. We, uh, we are beginning our 12th book uh, in our study of the Minor Prophets that we began uh, uh, just about a year ago. And uh, I'm, I've really been looking forward to this one. I, I, I really enjoy this book. I think it's fascinating. And uh, there's so much, and it's been true of all of these, but there is so much here in Malachi that is applicable to our lives now. And, and Malachi is the epitome of a minor prophet due to the length of this book. Like It's the length primarily that we're getting at when we call them minor. Um, and this book is only four chapters long. They're not all crazy short like this. As we just saw in Zechariah, um, it's longer. Uh, but Malachi is significant because it serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, it's actually probably the last book of the Old Testament to have been written, um, which is a little bit surprising because the Old Testament is not necessarily in chronological order, and certainly the minor prophets are not necessarily in chronological order. We've changed the order of these books, the order in which we've studied them, to actually put them in chronological order, because I think it makes it a little bit easier for us to follow what's going on. Um, but this morning, as we have, uh, as we've started previous books in the past, I want to begin just with a timeline, just to remind us of kind of where we are in the grand scheme of history. And when we started this study a year ago, we started with the prophet Jonah, uh, somewhere around the year 785 BC. Um, and we have now gone all the way over to 430 BC. So 785 to 430, massive span of time that we've covered in our study of these 12 books. And in the middle of all of this is a period known as the exile. And the exile begins somewhere around 732 with the Assyrians invading the northern kingdom of Israel and carrying people away into exile. Eventually, the Babylonians also invade the southern kingdom of Judah and carry the people away into exile. But in 538, the people are allowed to return back to Judah, back to Jerusalem, by the Persians who had come in and conquered the Babylonians. So today, we are picking up somewhere, all the way over here, somewhere around the year 430, about 100 years after the return from exile, about 80 years after the temple had been rebuilt, which is what we saw talked about in Haggai and in Zechariah that we just finished. Um, but Malachi does not give us an exact date. Um, unlike some of the minor prophets that do tell us specifically in the year of this king, right? In the second year of this person. Um, Malachi does not give us specifics like that. Um, so we say we're picking up around 430. That may be give or take five or ten years. Um, but there are a couple of things that help us to date this book. First of all, we know from reading Malachi that at the time that he's writing, the temple has been rebuilt. So not only have the people returned from exile, but the temple is finished, which means it's sometime after um, around 520, 518. It's sometime after that. But then also Malachi bears a striking resemblance to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so many scholars 
place Malachi as a contemporary of those two authors, which is going to put him more over here in this area about a hundred years after the return from exile. So, um, as we pick up in the storyline of Judah, Malachi is unfortunately writing to a people whose devotion to the Lord has largely gone cold. Shocker, right? We've never seen that before. I'm being sarcastic. That's been the whole storyline throughout this entire thing. God desires obedience from the people, not just because he's a demanding God who wants obedience. No, he wants the people to flourish, doesn't he? He wants the nation of Israel to be a blessing to the entire world. And so he has a particular way that he wants that to be accomplished, right? He has a particular will and plan that he's graciously inviting the people into. And yet the people throughout the history of Israel have uh, neglected to be obedient to the Lord largely. Some haven't. Some have followed him. But by and large, people have neglected to be obedient to the Lord and have gone after their own way. And as we pick up in Malachi, um, devotion to the Lord has waned, as I said. But at this point, by and large, it's not as if the nation has just like spiraled out into like outright paganism again. Um, instead, they've just sort of gotten to this place of like resigned indifference. It's like, in general, we believe in God, and, and in general, we're kind of participating in some of these things that he's called us to, but we also kind of feel like, meh, like, how important is all this stuff? How important is it that we really follow the law of Moses, that we really be obedient and follow it to a T? So there's just sort of this resigned indifference, and God is going to confront the people in Malachi regarding six key issues, six key accusations. Um, and so it's important for us to remember what has come before this, particularly the books of Haggai and Zechariah, who are also post-exilic prophets writing after the people have returned from exile. Haggai and Zechariah, and if you remember just in Zechariah, the book we just studied, so many of God's promises were conditional, like we highlighted that. That God said, if you will return to me, I will return to you, right? Like, if you will be my people, I will be your God. There is sort of this dynamic going on. Like, if you will be obedient to me, then I will bless you in all of these ways. And, and we're not just talking about physical blessings or material blessings. The blessings we're primarily talking about, if the people will be obedient to the Lord, is that they will see the words of the prophets before them come true, that a Messiah will come, and the fortunes of Israel will be restored, and this Messiah will come and institute his kingdom on earth, and it will be unlike anything anybody has ever experienced before. We ended last week's message, if you recall, by talking about Jesus' parable of the ten virgins. Do you remember that? The parable of the ten virgins, it's in Matthew 25. You don't have to turn there. But in, in that parable... Of the ten virgins, they're all waiting on the bridegroom to come. The bridegroom is taking forever to come in this parable. Five of the virgins are wise. Five of the virgins are foolish. What made the wise virgins wise was that they had brought enough oil to keep their lamps lit, no matter how long they had to wait for the bridegroom. The foolish virgins are seen to be foolish in that 
as the bridegroom tarries, like as it takes longer and longer and longer for him to arrive, they who haven't brought oil are at greater risk for their lamps going out. Their devotion to the bridegroom has waned, and that was evidenced by them being unprepared for his coming. And as we pick up in Malachi today, what we're seeing is that parable fleshed out in a nation. When the people initially returned from exile, there was this sort of burst of obedient energy, right? We've come back. God has moved. And so let's seek to be obedient to him. And they began the work of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, which was in ruins. But they quickly realized that God was not going to restore the nation magically, right? That he wasn't going to wave a magic wand and suddenly, poof, the temple was going to be rebuilt and the priesthood reinstituted and the monarchy reinstituted. No, they, they realized we have a role to play in this. Like, we're going to have to do this. And God has called us to do this. And so the people initially pressed on. God provided the resource. They completed the temple. But still the bridegroom has not come. Right? The Messiah has not shown up. And Judah is still at this point a subservient people. They are still sort of existing at the leisure of the Persians who allow them to be where they are and to do the things that they are doing. And so from the time of Zechariah, fast forward to 80 years, still the bridegroom has not come, and the people are starting to forget that they were ever waiting on him in the first place. So let's look this morning. Malachi chapter 1. We're going to read the first five verses of this today. Malachi 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So let's stop here. Uh, Malachi, whose name means my messenger, structures his book in the form of what are called disputations. Disputations. There are six disputations that take place here in this book. And these are essentially uh, like little vignettes where God says something and then the people respond in a way that disputes the thing that God has said. And then God responds again to their disputation. So verses 2 through 5 is the first disputation we find here in the book of Malachi. And, and let's just map this out. So step one in this disputation is God says, I have loved you. And then the people respond to God disputing what he has said by asking a question, how have you loved us? 
And you should read this with a, a, like a healthy dose of sarcasm. I have loved you. Pfft. How have you loved us? Then God responds to their disputation. So number three, is he, and what he says may not make sense on the surface. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? So this is the form that these take. God makes a statement. The people respond disputing it. And this is proverbially, by the way. Like this is, um, the people are not actually responding to God. However, maybe in like real life in practice, they were kind of on the street responding to the prophecy of Malachi. So when Malachi declares the word of the Lord, God loves you, what he's hearing is, come on, man. Seriously? So God declares his love for the people. The people, though, look around at what they have. They look at their country, and they think, whatever, God. And they feel this way because they don't have what they want. They don't have what they want. Power, wealth, independence, prosperity. So they respond, how have you loved us, God? Meaning, God, how can you even say that? So, so think about the virgins and the bridegroom. How can you say you love us when we have been waiting here so long for you to do what we want? And in their mind, waiting for you to do what you said you would do through the prophets, even though they're forgetting the conditional nature of God's statements to them. They can't fathom God's love or that he loves them because they have developed their own standard for love that is based on them getting what they want. Now, press pause here for a moment on Malachi because we do the exact same thing. We do the exact same thing. We struggle with God's love because we also want it to be based on him performing for us like a genie. We want to be able to pray, get exactly what we want, and then feel warm affection towards the Lord. Only to then move on to the next thing in our endless lists of wants and desires. But hear this. That is not the nature of our relationship to God or him to us. God does not exist for our pleasure. We exist for his. Let me say that again. God does not exist for our pleasure. We exist for his. Let me rephrase that so you don't miss what I'm saying there. God doesn't exist because it pleases us or to please us because who created who here we didn't create God so that we could somehow have a divine Santa Claus who hops to and does whatever we want when we call on him no he created us and it pleased him to make us in his image. And his desire is that our lives would be lived 
out of a desire to please him. Revelation 5 says that the prayers of the saints, the saints being those who have faith in Christ, those who are in Christ, that the prayers of the saints are like incense going up to the Lord. His desire is that our lives would be a pleasing aroma to him. And that's based on his standard, is it not? It's not based on my standard of what a pleasing aroma is. No, no, no. It's, it's him that gets to decide. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's go over to the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to look this morning at the words of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 1. Let's start in verse 3. What Paul says is that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let me, let me repeat that. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, writing to Christian believers, what he says is, hey guys, we have been incredibly blessed by God in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, so stop Let's examine that for just a moment. How has God blessed us? Number one, he has blessed us in Christ. He's blessed us in Christ. Like hard stop there. In other words, outside of Christ, we are not blessed. Outside of Christ, we are not blessed. No matter what you have or what your life is like, you might call it blessed, but if you don't have Christ, you are not blessed. It is only through faith in Jesus that we could ever lay claim to anything that could be considered a true blessing. But notice what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say anything about anything earthly in this statement. He has blessed us in Christ with what? With every spiritual blessing. That's the adjective, every spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessings as opposed to like material or physical or earthly blessings. If you are in Christ, Paul says, you have every spiritual blessing, but neither you nor I have every earthly blessing or physical blessing. Where are these spiritual blessings, by the way? They're in the heavenly places. They're in God's kingdom. They're in the realm where he rules and reigns. So what concerns me, guys, is, is that my guess, my guess would be that most of us would uh, repudiate what we, what we would call like a prosperity gospel, right? Um, we would be quick to say that it is not only biblically inaccurate, but also heretical, like against the teaching of Scripture, to claim that if we are faithful to the Lord, that God is going to return that faithfulness to us with great wealth or luxurious material possessions. If you've ever heard a prosperity preacher, and they're all over the TV, if you've ever heard a prosperity preacher telling a story about how God gave him a Lexus 
and as long as you give him money, God's going to give you your Lexus too, then you know what I'm talking about here. Hopefully that, that, that kind of thing is disgusting to you because it is completely antithetical to the gospel. But not so fast. While we may not believe an obvious, what I would call hard prosperity gospel, which is what I just described, as it relates to like God giving us wealth or God giving us material things, I am concerned that many of us functionally believe what we could call a soft prosperity gospel. In that, in general, I think that if I am faithful to the Lord, that he is going to prosper me and my family. Or you could say, in general, I believe that if I'm faithful to the Lord, he's going to bless me. And when I say that, I don't mean these spiritual blessings. I mean like real earthly physical blessings. Notice my language even just now. I'm talking about real blessings, God, right? Not these kinds of blessings I can't see or that I'll realize fully one day. I'm talking about the real stuff. Many of us, maybe not front of brain, but sort of unconsciously think if I follow the Lord, like he's going to do things like give me good health or he's going to remove obstacles in my life or maybe he's going to make my life easier in some way. He's going to give me things, maybe not luxury items, maybe not great wealth, but, but things, things that I want, like the, like the job that I want, or, or he's going to give me children, or he's going to give me the vacation, or whatever, on and on. And the problem with that is that each of us have a different mental picture or a different list of desires that relate to what it looks like for the Lord to bless us or to prosper us. And this is so insidious because us receiving the things we want can easily become our metric of God's love for us or whether or not God is real or not even. And it's a catch-22 because when we have everything we want, we are also very quick to forget God altogether. And come to believe that we've actually obtained these things for ourselves. That was totally the case for Israel, by the way. Like God blesses them in incredible ways. He gives them a land. He vanquishes their enemies for them. Like he brings them out of slavery. I mean, the history of what God has done for that nation is just unbelievable. And and he gives them all of these things. And what do they do? They decide he's not real and start worshiping false gods. I mean, you read the story, and it's just like, this is bonkers. But then you look at your own life, and you realize that you're apt to do the exact same thing. I'm apt to do the exact same thing. This is reflected to some extent in the words of a man named Agur, who, writing in Proverbs 30, said to God, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, God is most gracious according to the proverb writer, when he gives us exactly what we need. 
And nothing more, nothing less, anything more, anything less is a cause for temptation. What Paul's saying in Ephesians 1 is that God, listen, God has already prospered us. God has already prospered us, but not by giving us earthly things. He has prospered us by sending his only son, Jesus, to die so that we might find real life and that the blessings of this real life are spiritual blessings. They are not earthly blessings, and they flow from Christ. So if you are in Christ, you have been prospered because your eternity as a beloved son or daughter of the king of all creation has been sealed and your sins have been removed. They've been expunged. And here's what's so amazing. Paul says, look at verse 4 and 5. Paul says, God has purposed to do this for us before he even created the universe. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Friends, the primary thing that God has done for us is that he has adopted us to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. And that in and of itself is more than we could ever hope for or deserve. Right? Period. And that in and of itself is enough. More than enough. Anything else good we receive in this life is nothing but His grace. It is nothing but His grace. But we quickly forget this, and it leads to disillusionment, which is exactly what's going on with Judah here in Malachi. You know, we, we pray for Grandma to be healed, and Grandma dies. We pray to get the job we want, we don't get it. We pray to have children, and we struggle to get pregnant. And the lie that the enemy whispers into our ears is this. You sure are spending a lot of time on this God stuff. You sure are spending a lot of emotional energy. You sure don't seem to be getting everything you want out of this relationship. So is this even real? Maybe you should just take matters into your own hands. Never mind the fact that he has adopted me and called me a beloved son or daughter, that he's removed my sin, that he's made a place for me at his table. Right now, what I want is to not have a child with a special need. Or right now what I want is to not have had a miscarriage. Or right now what I want is you fill in the blank in your own life. Now listen, I believe God cares deeply about those things in your life and in my life. And there is nothing wrong with being disappointed. In fact, I think we should expect to be disappointed in this world. And to some extent should get comfortable with it because Jesus has promised it. John 16, Jesus tells his disciples, this is right before he gets arrested, right before he goes to the cross, Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus tells his disciples, the life that you're about to live 
is going to be filled with trouble. It is not going to go maybe the way that you would want it to go. And what Jesus says is that you have no cause for concern. You have no cause for worry because all of this I have overcome. And I'm telling you this now so that when you face tribulation, you can go, oh yeah, Jesus has overcome all of this and have peace. And I think we see that lived out in the lives of the apostles. In their boldness, in their courage, in their willingness to endure hardship and trial and suffering and jail and beatings and shipwrecks. Why not? Christ has overcome the world. And my future is sealed in the heavenly places. I've been blessed in every way possible. Our peace does not come from life going the way we want it to go. It does not come from earthly success or material things. In fact, it seems to be the case that the more earthly success and material things that we have, the greater the chance that we are fearful and anxious. Because we don't want to lose them. God, neither give me too much or too little. When we have things, they can become greater treasures to us than even Christ. So don't allow your disappointments to like take root within you and usurp the work of peace that Jesus has sought to sow into your life through his death and resurrection. Don't allow your desires for right now to become the functional gods of your life because what will happen is that you will lose sight of the beauty of what Christ has done and your list of disappointments will lead you to believe that God doesn't love you or that God is absent from your life when he has already more than proven his love for you through giving his son. Judah says, how have you loved us? How can you say that you have loved us? God, how can you say that we don't have our own nation, we don't have power, we don't have wealth, we don't really have freedom? Here's God's reply, verse 1. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? may seem like a strange way to reply. It's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. He says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So when the people dispute God's love, God takes them all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the very foundation, the formation of the nation of Israel. He, and we looked at this story, by the way, a few books ago when we studied Obadiah. But the short version is God formed Israel by calling Abraham. Why did he call Abraham? Why did he choose Abraham and not other people? He just did. And then God chooses Isaac instead of Abraham's son Ishmael. And then God chooses Jacob instead of the firstborn son of Isaac Esau. Does God choose them because they're uber-righteous godly men? No. He chooses them because he chooses them. He doesn't give us an explanation. So Jacob's clan goes on to become Israel. Jacob gets renamed Israel. Esau's clan goes on to become the nation of Edom, E-D-O-M. And they are historically enemies, Israel and Edom, enemies fighting each other throughout history. And in the time of the exile, Edom aligned with the Babylonians, if you remember, 
and assisted with the destruction of Jerusalem when the people were carried into exile. Edom rejoiced when they saw Judah being destroyed. And then guess what? God declared through Obadiah that he was going to destroy Edom. And then the very nation they had aligned with, the Babylonians, turn around and wipe them off the face of the earth. They're gone. Look at verse 3. God says, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we're shattered, but we're going to rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild and I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. When the people say, God, how can you say you love us? God says, you're here, aren't you? If there's any nation that by all normal standards should be gone, it's Israel. How many times have they been conquered, right? They've never been a superpower. There were always bigger, badder, wealthier nations. I mean, they're conquered over and over and over again. They have been so unfaithful to the Lord, despite his faithfulness, and yet God remembers his covenant right? God remembers his promises. God sustains them. How do I love you? You're breathing air right now, aren't you? You're still here. Yeah, but but God, we don't have this and this and this and this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've sustained you. I've brought you through. And I have to confess this morning, guys, that this message is as much a message for me as it is for anybody else, I think. You know, one of my One of my biggest struggles in life is just discontentment. It's it's wanting what I don't have. And it's maddening to me because most often it is completely illogical. Like it's not rooted in reality. Like God has blessed my life beyond measure on all fronts. Have there been hard things? Absolutely. Have there been failures and disappointments? Of course. But in spite of those things, God has poured out his grace on me. Yes, through Christ, but then also in all of these other ways. And my guess is the exact same thing is true for you as well. And yet in spite of that, I can be discontent for no reason, for no reason at all. I'm guilty of this with regards to our church You know, three years ago, we were this super tiny group of people. Everybody wasn't even bought in to the notion of planning a church. We had no meeting space. Uh, We had no money. You know, we were trying to figure out how's this even going to happen or work. Uh, I would say a really unclear future at that point. And yet we felt called to this work of planning a church. But, I mean, there were times where I had serious doubts as to whether or not this would actually happen. Or if it'd just be a, hey, we tried this for six months and it didn't take. I mean, because church plants fail every day. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty normal trajectory for a lot of church plants. Uh, then we entered into a pandemic, right? Then we're meeting on Zoom. Goodness gracious. And now I look up, literally all of the things that we have prayed for have come to fruition. We have a building, we have a stable financial footing, 
We have grown. We've seen people receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the future, which at one, was at one point murky, to me now seems super bright and sure. Like the Lord has moved in an incredible way and in a very short period of time, right? And yet for some reason I can be so focused on what we don't have or what we are not currently or occasional problems that I don't appropriately celebrate or worship the Lord for what he's done. And that's sin. So I want to end today, I know this has been kind of long, but I want to end today with just two quick thoughts. Um, Things I see in myself that I think breed some of this discontentment and disillusionment, and my guess is it's not only me, but also in you. Um, First of all, for many of us, other voices in our lives have become more significant to us than the voice of God. In any given week, we spend far more time listening to podcasts, uh, watching TV, watching YouTube, ingesting media than we do imbibing the Word of God. And uh, it's easy to justify those things because they're not necessarily bad things we're listening to or watching, hopefully. And yet, they can come to shape us. They can disciple us in ways that are lesser than the way our Lord would seek to disciple us through his word. And so it's only natural that those voices can come to drown out the truths of Scripture, and and we have to reverse that trend, guys. Um, And I'd propose to you that the season of Lent, which is beginning here at the end of this month, is like the perfect time for uh, you to intentionally reorient the inputs in your life, even if they're good inputs, that it's a time to intentionally press pause on some of those things so as to go all in on the reading and study of Scripture Go all in on meditating on the word of God, spending time with him in prayer so as to listen to his voice. And then secondly, I think many of us are just living in states of constant comparison to other people. Um, And you can blame social media for this, but this was a phenomenon that existed long before social media. Social media has just exacerbated it. It's made it easier for us to compare ourselves to more people than ever before, right? Um, And here's the thing. I actually think this is a holy and godly impulse, this comparison impulse. Um, We are all unconsciously looking for cues on how to live and be. Uh, We're constantly trying to figure out if we're normal by looking at other people's lives. Uh, But that's that's a vicious trap, right? Because it fuels discontentment just like automatically because we aren't other people. Um... And also, we, we often don't really know what's going on in other people's lives, 
We just see what's on the surface. We don't actually know what's happening behind the scenes. And the reason why I say I think that this is actually a godly impulse is because we are actually called to compare ourselves to somebody and to adjust our lives based on that comparison, but that person is Christ. It certainly is not our neighbor or so-and-so on social media. We are to look to him and to live in comparison, to recognize how we don't measure up, that that in and of itself should breed humility within us, but also a desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. Rather than looking to our neighbor and trying to figure out, am I normal? We're, we're looking to Christ, pressing into pursuing his image in our lives. And as a result, we are increasingly becoming abnormal compared to everyone else around us. There should be this growing disparity between us and the rest of the world. Um, in other words, we need to be getting more comfortable with being different. All right, let me stop there for today. I want to leave you again with Jesus' words in John 16. Um, and I'd encourage you even this week to work on just memorizing these words and allowing them to shape your interaction with the world around you and all the things you do. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And, and notice there's some context there that we're missing he says, I've said all these things. Go back, John 15. Go read what Jesus has been teaching his disciples. I've said all these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Tribulation is not apocalypse. Like tribulation is just hard stuff. Tribulation is disappointment. Tribulation is stuff not going the way I want it to go. Tribulation is having enemies. Tribulation is people opposing me. I mean, it's, it's all of these things. You will have that. It's not a sign of God's pleasure with you. It's just the characteristics of the brokenness of the world we're living in currently. But Jesus says, take heart. That means be encouraged, right? Be upbeat, don't be downcast. Take heart. Why? I have overcome the world. Let's go to him in thanks and praise this morning. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for the beauty of your gospel and the truth um, of your holy scripture. Thank you for the ways that you have poured out your spirit, for the ways that you have secured uh, spiritual blessings for us in the heavenly places. And I pray, Father, that we would truly come to see those things as being more significant than any earthly blessing that we could possibly attain. God, would you root that so deeply within us that, that it truly does become a source of peace to us, that we truly do take heart in it, that it is an encouragement to our lives and something that alters the way that we interact with the world around us so that we're not living in constant comparison to other people or we're not living uh, just in the voices of other people, Father, but that we're seeking to hear from you and to live in accordance with your word and to look to Christ as our example for life. Give us your grace, Father, as we seek to do this. In the name of Jesus, amen.